Hi, I'm Steve Schwartz from New York. And I'm Graham Blake in Montreal, and we're two LSAT tutors, and we're going to answer your LSAT questions today. All right, Graham, so shall we jump in? Yep. Excellent. So, All right, so I, I, I got a couple here from a student of mine, Gabrielle. Great. The first one is, um, how do you determine when a logical reasoning answer choice is outside the scope? What are your thoughts on this? So my thoughts on this are that I actually don't like the phrase outside the scope. Uh, before I go into any more depth, uh, how do you feel about outside the scope? I find it incredibly frustrating when explanations from certain major LSAT companies use that as an excuse. I feel like it doesn't go in enough depth, but I'll let you take the lead on this one. Sure. So my issue with outside the scope is what it really means is irrelevant, I think. And if something is irrelevant, that, that's actually determining whether something is relevant is the whole question. So if something is relevant, it's not outside of scope. If something is irrelevant, it is outside of scope, or at least it can be. But um, if you know that, that's your conclusion. It's not your reason for eliminating an answer. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we've both written lots of LSAT explanations. We've worked with tons of students. And if I think if one of them asked me, why is this wrong? And I said, out of scope, they wouldn't be very happy because I wouldn't be have been going into enough depth. The answer choice could be extreme in a certain way. It could be reversing something in a certain way, but regardless, it's irrelevant and not covered by the stimulus for one specific reason or another. And I believe that developing a solid understanding of the wide varieties of ways a choice can be outside the scope is the key to deepening your understanding of why a wrong answer choice is wrong and then therefore avoiding it. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to uh, just sort of go to absurd lengths sometimes when like considering examples. Let me know if this feels like something relevant to you that would strengthen an argument or if you would actually call this out of scope. Um, say we had an argument that said, uh, we don't think that there will be work at the office tomorrow. Uh, the boss has been sick recently and he might just uh, give everybody a day off. And so nobody will have to come to work tomorrow is the conclusion. And if one of the answers said, like, a meteorite will strike the city and destroy the office. Um, now, that's absurd, and you're never going to see it on the LSAT. But to me, that would strengthen the argument. Not directly, using its reasoning, but it would still strengthen at least the conclusion. Um, do, you, do you agree, or do you think that's something that would be out of scope and wrong if they put it on an LSAT? That's a great question. I would suspect that you know, this strengthens the conclusion, but it doesn't necessarily strengthen the reasoning within the argument itself. Mm. I would suspect that for that reason, it probably simply wouldn't be an answer choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think probably if I had more time to construct a better example or go through the LSAT things, like I think what gets students here is sometimes there's like a, a thing that actually is relevant to the reasoning, but it feels uh, as absurd as the meteor thing, but it's actually not. And so it can be tied in, but students worry that like, oh, they didn't mention this factor in the argument, and so it's out of scope. And I think that's where um, that's where this concept can actually trip people up and be harmful. Well, there are, yeah, there are a couple of questions that come to mind where I, I think like these are examples of things that seemed outside the scope but weren't. So let's say one of my favorite questions, it's from Prep Test 30, the rattlesnake folktale question. And let me know if I'm getting too much into specifics here, but the correct answer choice involves something that was not specifically mentioned in the stimulus, but it was still relevant because the it was dismissing a potential problem with the reasoning contained within the argument. So it might seem out of scope because it was not directly stated, yet it was still relevant to the reasoning. So that was not outside the scope, although it was not directly mentioned. In contrast, I think a lot of times something could be outside the scope for a reason as simple as that it's too extreme. So if the stimulus was referring to sometimes or most of the time, and the conclusion said always or never, that's too strong. And because it's too strong, it's technically, yes, it's outside the scope. It goes beyond. Oh, interesting. So, uh, and I think your rattlesnake question example is much better than the one I gave. And maybe the analog in like the um, boss giving people a day off work thing would be like company regulations forbid the boss to uh, cancel days off or to, to cancel work. Um, in which case, in which case, yeah, the, re the, the fact that the boss is not going to be there is made irrelevant. Yeah. And so the, that in a way that would weaken the reasoning. Yeah, so 
I think that's much better. But that's interesting that you you say. So you actually you yourself do use out of scope as like a a valid tool. You just think it's lazy in a lot of the cases applied. I don't really like to use it at all, honestly. Okay. The, my rattlesnake folktale example, and it's like te from test 30 if anyone wants to look it up, but the point is that the specifics of the correct answer choice are not mentioned in the stimulus. And so students will think that this was out of scope when instead, due to the fact that when considered in the context of the stimulus, it actually does relate. It is actually not outside the scope and it actually is necessary in order for the argument to work. Oh yeah, I actually meant more um, the, you know, your sum example versus like an all uh, thing where it was like too strong. Would you actually use out of scope if the student wasn't themselves bringing it up? Or is that just like uh, you would use too strong yourself and you would never mention the words out of scope unless the student like really wanted to hear it in those terms? Probably, yeah, I would not actually use the terms if the student had been using materials from a prep company where that was a common phrase. I might allow them to use that phrase in our conversations, but my, my explanation and my, my terminology would say the degree of certainty is too strong. Sometimes versus always does not line up. And so the degree of certainty is the reason that a particular answer choice might be wrong. Okay, I think we're on the same page then. That basically, like, we can describe stuff in terms of scope, but both of us prefer not to, and it's not how we think. And probably... Uh, like just to get back to the answer to the question of like how do you determine when a logical reasoning answer choice is out of scope? Um, I mean, what what do we say as an answer to that question? Like we just uh, <laughs> we don't, or we don't think in those terms, and it is the question just like a not a trap question, but one that we actually wouldn't answer directly, or do you have a direct answer to? Their concern that's there. a great. That's a great question. I, I want to leave the the listeners with a, with a bit more than that. So I mean, let's we could talk a bit about the various reasons why a given answer, logical reasoning answer choice might be wrong. I mean, one I I uh, mentioned was degree of certainty. Another one I often talk about is the category of what's being discussed. Oftentimes in the stimulus, they'll qualify the group they're discussing. So they'll say all people who wear yellow hats. And then if the answer choice said all people in general, that would be going too far. And some might say that's going outside the scope, but I would say that's going beyond the category of what they were discussing in the stimulus. The stimulus qualified all people with the limitation, those who wear yellow hats, whereas the answer choice is making a claim about all people in general. And an example where this might come up would be, let's say there was a study involving specifically senior citizens in one region between these ages. And then the conclusion of that study goes farther than that to discuss all people in general. And that's also, of course, a methodological study flaw. But specifically, they're also going, quote unquote, outside the scope by broadening their claim to people beyond those directly mentioned or the type of people those directly mentioned. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I think it's really good to just sort of come up with names of like common things that they do in the answer so that you start to recognize patterns. And when you then see the wrong answer, you, um, you'd be like, oh, I, I see what they're doing or I see what they might be doing. In other words, the words might seem tempting, but you're like, but wait, are they doing like going to another group? Um, or like in my case, one that I often notice is like the difference between relative and absolute words, like healthy, absolute, uh, healthier, relative. Mm -hmm. So that might be something that someone might call out of scope. Like we were talking about make someone healthy, not what makes them less unhealthy or healthier. But to me, when I see that, I never think out of scope. I just think absolute relative. Is this the same thing that they used in the stimulus or did they switch it? Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a lot of things like that. There's yeah. almost too many to list. And I don't think it would be even useful for us to try and list them all. I think it's really up to students when they're reviewing to look for patterns in wrong answer choices and really force themselves to specifically say, what is making this answer choice wrong? And over time, as you do this, you'll start to see those patterns and start to see the tricks the test makers are using in order to tempt you into choosing something that's incorrect and something that is quote unquote outside the scope. Yeah, I think that's that's the ultimate like long run answer, that it's, it's just a process of building your own sort of database of what are the ways they can try to trick me? Yeah. And what are they called? Because when you give a name to something, then that's when you sort of have some power over it and you can actually describe it and think about it. Definitely, yeah. Articulating this, writing out your, your review process, you're analyzing your thought patterns, but actually forcing yourself to write it down to really articulate for yourself in your own words 
why something is wrong, not to just look at the choice, the correct answer and say, oh, I get it now. How could I have been so dumb before? Yeah, totally. All right. Do you want to move on yeah. to the next question? Yeah, sure. So Gabrielle had one other question I wanted to touch on today, which is how do you know when to stop trying to make deductions on logic games? This is Big a, question. Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. Do you want to go first on this one? Or do you want yeah, to sure. Yeah, sure. I, I, could, I could give an initial shot at it. So there's no easy answer on this. There's no specific number of minutes to focus on deductions versus moving on to the questions. A lot of it will depend upon the nature of the game and how many deductions it would be easy or useful to make up front. And then it also comes down to your particular style. Some people like to work to make more inferences up front. And of course, inferences are good, but at a certain point, it does become diminishing marginal returns. So I don't really have a firm answer on this. It's, it's really more about the particulars of the game. And of course, there are certain patterns and deductions we can get into, but that's my quick answer on that. Okay, I guess mine is like two part and one's conceptual and one's based on experience. And the one's based on experience, um, I'll say first just because it's shorter and easier. Uh, to some extent, you build an intuition for it. In other words, you should always be asking yourself, were these deductions that I did fruitful or was I spinning my wheels? And as you do more games and redo them and review them, you'll get a sense of uh, this is where I should have stopped versus not. But that's that's more just like, I'm saying you should have it as a goal, but it, that doesn't really give you any clear guidance. So here's the clear guidance for how I think about it. Uh, to me, on logic games, there's a big difference between must-be-true type things and could-be-true type things. So I tend to stick to one or two main templates. Like if, say there's something like S is in first or S is in seventh, I'll usually draw both of those and then fill in some stuff. But otherwise, I'll stick to one. And I'll try and go as far as I can with putting things that like must be true on the diagram. As in, like if I can combine rules two and three to say that like Q must always be third, then I want that there. But if I can see like, uh, well, Q could be fourth, fifth, seventh, or second, and then there's like five other possibilities for each of those, I probably want to stop way before that point because on any game, there's probably like, I don't know, it's not that many, uh, as in it's not like thousands of combinations, but there's probably like 40 to 70 combinations of the game pieces on most games. And it's obviously not fruitful to draw out all 40 combinations. So when I say must be true, really what I mean is like the scenario that sort of gets you a diagram that from that you could maybe make five or six other branches when the question calls for it and it narrows down the 40 things to, it, it makes clear like the main base of each of those sets, but it doesn't take that much work to do and you're not just creating like scenarios 37 through 40 out of the 40 possible ones. I would agree with that. I think that it's good to get some sense of a main diagram and if there are any rules you can quickly uh, combine to make an inference, wonderful, do it. Put that on your main diagram or put, or put it to the side depending on the nature of the, of the rule or the inference. But yeah, I, I wouldn't start haphazardly drawing multiple diagrams and say, okay, well now I have a valid scenario. Yes, you have one valid scenario, but will this scenario be useful to you when answering the questions? I think it's, I agree with you, Graham. I think that having a sense of where multiple main diagrams could go and then flesh those out later when it would be useful to do so, depending on whatever local questions might show up, that's great. But I wouldn't draw four diagrams just because you know how to draw four. You wanna draw four because all, or maybe four partial diagrams and then all valid scenarios, those 40 to 70, are contained within those and could be splintered off or fleshed out if and when you choose to, or when it would be useful to do so. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, I just want to raise, like, there was one possible difference between our approaches there. You said sometimes, like, I think you said, some deductions might be useful, but, like, how much time do you want to spend on it? Uh, what sort of, or I think, is that what you said? Yeah, something like that. Uh, what's What did you have in mind when you talked about, like, that? What would be an example of a deduction that could be made, but is actually not fruitful to make up front? Well, some of this comes down to students' particular styles. I know that some prep companies, they'll have you drawing lots of restrictions about, you know, let's say you have A is before B and B is before C, so you have a chain of sequ a sequence chain, A is before B is before C. You could then put in all sorts of restrictions like C is not one or two, A is not seven or eight if there were eight slots, and B is not first or last. You could draw all of that in. And these, these are minor things. 
that maybe you want to include, maybe you don't. There are pros and cons. You, you might clutter up your diagram. or But at a certain point, I think that these things do become intuitive, where if you know A is before two other variables, yeah, you kind of know A is not going to be at the end. Yeah, interesting. I, I guess I wouldn't have called those deductions, but like obviously they are. Um, so I guess I'm approaching that on a different level where as you're aiming for a higher score, you should aim to just sort of see some or know some deductions without drawing them in the same way that you know that if you like close a door, you know you can't get out of the room. As in you don't have to like explicitly write that down or anything. It's just something you know about doors. So likewise, if you see that like A is before B, then you just sort of should know that you can't put B first without drawing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, for higher scores, that's going to be that's going to be intuitive. But there's another thing we can talk about, which is let's say a student has a game where they don't make a lot of inferences up front. And then it turns out there's a global question, which one of the following must be on slot five? And as a student, you're like, well, I didn't know there was anything that had to be on slot five. Why didn't I think of that at the beginning? And what I found in, in certain cases, it's not apparently obvious that a particular variable had to be on slot five at the outset. And even when considering all the rules together, that just didn't pop out. I cannot agree more. That uh, yeah. I think students should know that like people that at our level will sometimes get to global question and be like, oh, I didn't know there was anything there. And then we'll fumble mm -hmm. around a bit and then we'll figure it out. And sometimes you could have figured it out in fr up front, but it didn't matter that you didn't. Sometimes you couldn't have it, but like it's, it's not a big deal if you don't get every single little thing that could be deduced. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like sometimes, you know, you could, you could spend 10 minutes just looking at the rules and never figure out that slot five is restricted in that way. But that's okay. You don't have to solve every game perfectly like, a, like an AI computer would. What you could do instead is simply, you do the local questions first, you build up a baseline, a, a base of hypothetical scenarios, and then you could use those to eliminate wrong answers for what did not appear on five. And then yeah. maybe you draw one or two diagrams, but you don't have to know everything up front. I think so, maybe some of the older games lent themselves more to that approach where you figure out lots up front and like solve the game from the start. But I've noticed in more recent games, it's more about drawing hypotheticals and absorbing an understanding of the rules. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I like how you put it, absorbing an understanding of the rules, because you learn in logic games by doing, uh, not by thinking in a lot of cases. Uh, but a lot of people think that like they'll just sort of like stare at the thing and think in their head. But I find as you draw, that's how you get more knowledge about the game. And so doing those local questions that you mentioned is is absolutely like the best way to understand it. No, thanks for that, Graham. Yeah, I think the active engagement is really important. Not trying to just reason through everything at the outset. That can end up that's that's the equivalent of getting bogged down in my mind. Where you someone keeps in LR, they keep reading the stimulus, and then nothing's clicking for them. When in reality. They might just need to take a break and come back to it later. Yeah. I think we've touched this one pretty well. You want to move on to the next yeah. one? Yeah, that's all I had. Okay, cool. Um, so Peter says, I'm plateauing at the mid-160s mainly due to huge score fluctuations, parentheses, minus one on one section, minus 11 on another section. Did you ever get stuck around a scoring range or experience wide score fluctuations? Graham, you want to start with this one? Yeah. Uh, uh, this is <laughs> this is a sort of question where, in some ways, it's hard for me to answer because, and I think probably a lot of LSAT tutors have this problem that you just kind of start high, and so you never went through the struggle of like months and months stuck at a plateau and breaking through somehow. Um, I I started probably about one sixty five. I was worse at logic games. I crammed that for a bit. I studied for about three months total, and I got a I was averaging like one seventy four or something, and I got a one seventy seven on test day. And so I didn't have um, any wide score fluctuations like that, and I didn't get stuck in a scoring range. But I do hear from students about this a lot, and there are... One thing that I think is important to think about is that there's always variance. So I would want to know more about this student, like, were they having, are they having huge fluctuations where, like, their RC goes from minus 1 to minus 11, and, like, frequently? as in they're not just like one-off outliers. In that case, maybe there's an actual problem. But I think people have an expectation that like the LSAT should just be steady. You know, you're like 164, 164, 164, 165. Um, but that's not how it works. My dad's a, a golfer and you know, he golfs the same golf course every day and he, his score varies because everything in life varies. 
we just usually don't measure it the way that we measure LSAT scores. And so uh, it's normal for them to vary, and it's normal for sections to vary more than the whole thing because the smaller your sample size, the wider your variance. So if these are just, like, let's say they on average get like five to eight wrong on a section, but they get minus one once and they get minus 11 once, that's not significant at all. But if they regularly seem like minus one, minus two, minus 12, minus 11, minus 10 on a specific section, that's more worrisome. And I'd want to know, like, is it a certain type of thing or a certain passage topic? Um, but those are my thoughts on fluctuations. I have thoughts on plateaus as well, but I'll but give you a chance to, to say some stuff. Yeah, sure, Graham. So I was actually, I was stuck when I started studying. I was stuck in the low 150s for quite a while, several months, actually. I wouldn't really call that a plateau because that was before I improved. But yeah, I, I was stuck for a long time. It was incredibly frustrating. It sucked. I thought I was an idiot and that I would never improve. Um, in terms of fluctuations, not quite so much. I did see gradual improvement over time. But yeah, it, w it wasn't steady. It was more like, you know, punctuated equilibrium in evolutionary theory versus graduated equilibrium. Like it was nothing for a while and then a sudden boost and then nothing for a while and then a sudden boost. And those sudden boosts were breakthroughs in understanding of one type or another. But to, to tackle this issue of variations between sections, I'll, I'll assume for a moment that the Peter is talking about logical reasoning for both minus one and let's say Peter gets minus one on his first LR and then minus left on his second LR because that's consistent within LR something is something is going wrong and I would doubt that it's Peter's understanding of logical reasoning in this instance maybe he gets minus one his first section while he's feeling fresh and then he does minus, he gets minus 11 on his last LR section which is maybe his fourth or fifth section assuming a full-length timed exam and so maybe Peter's tired and needs to work on his endurance or maybe he got a phone call in the middle of this and then he was distracted. So there's, there's a lot of factors and there is an element of randomness and some of it is due to content. I would imagine if you have a, a brutal game or two in one section, like one of those curveball games, that could, that could throw you and then the next exam doesn't have a, a curveball game and it's a bit easier for you. Or maybe there's a reading comp passage that you just can't possibly understand in that moment and that leads you to get a whole bunch wrong and then you're doing the next passage, but you're still thinking about the one that you didn't get. And so you get questions wrong there too. So I think a lot of this does come down to psychology. It's not necessarily content related, but it could be pacing and endurance related, and it could be mindset related. And so I recommend to a lot of students, you know, if you're getting minus 11 on one and minus one on the other, something is not just about your understanding level. Minus one on a section, assuming like realistic strict timing, that's incredible. If you could get minus one on all four sections, you're getting something like a 175 or better. So how do you improve, how do you stay, stay focused and confident so that your understanding translates such that you're not getting minus 11? One thing I recommend to students, among other things, is mindfulness meditation, which I found to be enormously helpful in my personal life, but also when it comes to LSAT focus. It changes things when you're not worried about a previous question or section as you are focused on your current one. I've been yeah. rambling for a while, so I'll, Graham, I'll let you share your thoughts on this. Oh yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I recommend mindfulness to my students too, both in the like general meditation sense, but also in the sort of um, monitoring yourself as in like, are you feeling stress in this moment? And then what can you do to like, can you breathe or whatever? Like, I mean, I don't mean on the else, I just mean in everyday life. Um, and mindfulness is basically practicing, focusing on the present. And that's what the LSAT is. Uh, focusing on the thing in front of you. So, yeah, but, um, and I think it's good to, like you said, try and look for a specific cause. Like, if, if is it always happening? Is it always section four that's low, always section one that's low? Um, I would just want, like, more information to know, like, exactly what the nature of the problem is, because within, like, one, minus one to minus 11, like, there's a huge range of possibilities there. But I did want to ask, like, what normal var what level of variance would you say is normal if a student tells you about it and what level would you say is abnormal that's a great question graham i would say that what you touched on earlier like minus four to minus seven that actually could be quote unquote normal it's obviously not desirable but you know peter's example seems a little bit extreme but the mi you know, minus four difference let's say someone gets five wrong on one section and then nine wrong on another that doesn't sound out of the range of possibility to me for a student scoring in that range. 
and it could be because of a wide variety of factors like we mentioned, or it could just be randomness. There is an element of randomness, as you said, and we're, you're not deal when you're looking at one exam, you're not dealing with a very large sample. That's only 100 questions. That's one three and a half hour sitting or so. And I would say you want to look at what happens over the course of five exams taken over the course of a, a few weeks or a month and average those. And the average of those is probably your best re reflection of where you actually are. Another thing to be thinking about is the realistic conditions in which you're taking these and if you're taking them without distractions. I do think that plays an enormous role. Your mindset, the, the sleep you got, the food you ate, uh, what you did yesterday, the daily life stresses, and you wanna, of course, minimize all of those things. I recommend that students focus on you know four different major things of aspects of their life in order to be going ahead full force. Sleep, diet, exercise, and mindfulness or relaxation. And those are great ways to get out of depression. They're great ways to get out of a funk and they're also great ways to avoid burnout. And I think that sometimes these sorts of fluctuations, things just shut down in part because of burnout. I totally agree. Um, the LSAT is a skill-based test. It's more like an athletic competition than it is a university exam where you can just cram and memorize and then forget it all the next day. Um, this is more a test of your functioning and to function properly, you need to eat and sleep, etc. cetera. Um, and that does, I, that does sort of seek into something I wanted to say about plateaus, but first there was just one more thing I wanted to say about like variance in that, let's say the variance is happening in a specific section, like a student is often getting like way worse on some logic game sections rather than others or way worse on some reading comp. I think it's a very good idea for the student to do some tracking and see like what caused it. Was it like say science passages are a common thing that I hear on reading comp, for example. Some students just have like an Achilles heel with science. And then in that case, you would want to, I usually recommend people read like the Economist magazine science section, just to sort of get like a baseline level of scientific knowledge that's written for the, the layperson um, to try to kind of shore that up. Or if it was like a certain type of logic game, you would drill that, repeat that. But basically, if you're getting larger than normal variants, you want to think about why and then work to address it. Like it's not, the, <laughs> some, some variation is, is caused by randomness. But on the other hand, if you're getting really large variations, it's not just happening for no reason. And so you have to figure out like what the reason is and um, work to address that specifically. That's a great point, Graham. Yeah, so for example, like reading comprehension, maybe, there were, maybe you don't like science passages, but there was one reading comp passage where it was a science topic that you didn't find that difficult. You had some prior familiarity with, with the topic and so it was okay then the next one is on something totally out of left field, that one throws you and that's suddenly six questions wrong in that passage and then it throws you off for the following passage. Or maybe there's lots of game types and one exam might not cover a game that you didn't like and so you do well on that one. Another exam does contain that hard game type and you don't know what to do. So the question is obviously figure out what you're getting wrong and focus on it, but you do need a larger sample than one exam. Yeah. So for plateaus, speaking of like fatigue and mindfulness and burnout and so on one thing that this is pretty anecdotal but i've been just sort of talking to people that made a larger improvement and there seems to be a commonality that a lot of them took a break at some point like they maybe had a week or two off after like working hard and then they started working again um and i find that this sort of like i don't know the mind needs like downtime to like rest and assimilate the knowledge it's been learning um because we're talking about like long for long-term skill acquisition and rest and recovery is a big part of that. Um, I guess, did you have that in your own move from like the, the 150s to the 170s? And is that something you've seen in other students? What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was studying over an incredibly long period. I actually spent an entire year studying for this thing. And so obviously I wasn't studying every week. I wasn't studying, I could even take a two week break sometimes. And I did find that helpful. If you're studying over a long period, which I think more and more students are doing as they're looking to retake, then yes, of course, there might be periods where it's the week between Christmas and New Year's, or you go on vacation at some point, or maybe there are family events like weddings, for example. So yeah, of course, there are periods away, they happen inevitably, and it's okay to take a break every once in a while. It's good. Burnout is real and counterproductive. There's nothing worse than putting in lots of time and then actually doing worse as a result of it. You want to get the most out of every hour of studying. And that means sometimes less is more. Five to six hours a day 
is probably too much for a lot of people to be honest if you're yeah. really putting in that focused study time. And so you want to strike a balance between you taking a break every now and then, you can take the weekends off, you don't have to study every single day. I built rest days into my study plans for that exact reason. I want people to take a rest, I want them to take a break. It's useful, it's good, and it also helps you get all those other aspects of your life in order so that you're, you're feeling good and fresh and sharp. That's really important. You also don't want to go too far. If you have a, a bout of like late night drinking, and then you try to do an exam the next day, your score's not gonna be great. And you're gonna be like, oh my God, I haven't been going up. It's like, of course you haven't been going up, you're hungover, you know? Like, so <laughs> it's, it's important to take a break, but also remember that you do need to be sharp. And so it's all about finding that balance. And if you try to study over this over two to three months, it may not be enough. The else that's important enough that's worth giving yourself a bit more time to reach your full potential. Yeah, totally. Cause like a, a 20 point score improvement is really not common. And among those that do it, where it wasn't caused by like an abnormally low diagnostic or something, um, I've noticed longer study periods tend to happen and with breaks. Like it just may be necessary to sort of rewire the brain for that much of a change in, in thought patterns. Yeah. The, oh. uh, I just said one more thing about plateaus, which is that um, if you're stuck in one, more of the same isn't going to do it. One mis common mistake I see people do sometimes is to come to me like, I did every, like, one of the, like, 84 practice tests and uh, haven't improved. And it's like, if you're in the middle of this, like, stop. Don't keep doing that. <laughs> get, redo some material, do some drills, review stuff, try and figure out, like, what the problem is. But just, it's not a memorization test, so cramming material is not the answer to getting through a plateau. Yeah, I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different <laughs> results, right? Yeah, you've got to pretty much figure out you've got to figure out what you're doing wrong and change it up, do something differently. And maybe that involves more time reviewing. For a lot of students, I think it does require more time reviewing. And then additionally, I think lost my train of thought there for a minute. Uh, but I guess the other thing I was going to say is it's important to also review your weak areas and not just take exam after exam, you know, riding, chasing that high, looking for that next score, you know, score that's out of 180 to see where you stand. It's not about taking the exams. It's about learning from your mistakes. Yeah. I actually, um, I'm friends with a former writer of actual LSAT questions. And one thing he suggested was 10 exams could be enough for a lot of people. If you reviewed those 10 exams in excruciating detail, that would make an enormous difference. Oh, totally. That's what happened I think to me. Uh, yeah? How when many exams I, did you take? To, well, you see, uh, well, when I was studying, I just like went to the bookstore and bought uh, one of those major prep company books that at the time didn't have real outside questions. So my before the test studying isn't instructive. But the thing is, when I took the test, even though I got a 177, it, like, it, was, it was a struggle. Uh, to do the questions, like, you know, I was tired, I couldn't really tell you exactly why an answer was, I was like, eh, this one, I feel it, like, um, like, I, I wasn't nearly as good at articulating stuff as I am now, and I was much slower, um, but n afterwards, when I started teaching, every student came to me often had, like, the same book of 10 questions, so I just started seeing, like, the same questions from that book of 10 prep tests, or sorry, the book of 10 prep tests, I started seeing the same ones over and over and over and over, and it's exactly like that test writer described, by just seeing these questions in excruciating detail and having to explain to people like all the little minutia of them, I suddenly got a lot better at the test. E like even though my score was high, I got more skilled. I could go through faster, calmly, confidently. And it was just from 10 tests. Like it wasn't, there's probably even some LSATs I haven't looked at. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how doing the same exam questions several times, doing them five times, 10 times, like if you do redo a game five or ten times you will see new things in that game it's the amount of complexity in these exams is insane and i have so much respect for it there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot contained within these questions and explaining you know writing off your wrong answer choice in three minutes you're missing there's a lot more depth to be found there and it does require doing the questions multiple times and so yeah i would say if you're plateauing, it means you're taking lots of exams most likely and you're thinking about that. So instead of taking more exams, look at the exams you've already taken and analyze them. It's true, you've, them. Taken, you've taken enough exams to know you're at a plateau. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sure sign because you need a big enough sample to actually even reach that judgment. Yeah, so I would say slow down and review more thoroughly. Yeah. Um, 
Want to move on to the next one? Yep. All right, so we've got Monsi here asking, I've currently been at a 150 and would love to increase my score 15 to 20 points. I've been a straight A student and would hate for my LSAT score to not reflect the level of work I can do. Do you think I can do this for the November LSAT over, let's say, a two to three month period? I'm worried that with rolling admissions, sending an application in early December may jeopardize my chances. Or would having the best LSAT score possible possibly trump any negatives of applying later in the cycle? I'm registered for September, but I'm not where I need to be. So okay. basically, how fast she, how much can she improve in a relatively short period of time? Well, I don't know when you got this question, but uh, at the time of recording, we're not far from September, and uh, there's not enough time for that. Certainly not enough time to make like a 15, 20 point improvement by September. And I'm not even sure about November, um, just because that's, it's a really hard thing to do. We also don't know, like, let's say they started at 140, and then through like three months of work, got up to 150. I'd say it's going to be even harder. Whereas if the student like just took their first test and they're at 150, uh, somewhat easier because they haven't made their beginner gains yet. But um, certainly, I think they're going to find it very difficult to do by November, just because that's a really big increase. It's not impossible, but they should certainly be open to the possibility that uh, they might have to take January or defer a cycle just because the rewards from having a higher LSAT are so large in terms of scholarships and admissions that um, they may not get anywhere acceptable. And the risk is you, you may end up with like a 156 and only be going to a school that's like has poor employment outcomes and gives you 200,000 in debt. But because you now feel committed to the process, you then are like, well, I may as well go. I think it's important when you're in a situation to write down in advance sort of like what your minimum score and minimum school outcome is and then tell yourself that like, well, I just won't go or I'll defer if I don't get to that. Yeah, exactly, Graham. I agree 100%. It's important to have a plan and to have a minimum for what you want, what will be the deciding factor in whether you go to law school or not and decide which law schools are worth going into or not based on their employment outcomes. Uh, 15, to answer the question more broadly, 15 to 20 points yeah, of certainly not possible in just a, a week or two, maybe not even possible in two to three months. A lot of it depends on what else you have going on during that time period, how much studying you can put in, and also the way that you're studying. But yeah, that sort of point increase, it could take, I think we were answering another question on this, it could, a 20 point increase, that could take much longer than average. It could take five to six months. And you might not want to study over that long a time period, but that might be what it takes to get there. A 150 right now, it's really right around the average or the median LSAT score of like 151. It's not gonna get you into law schools that I would suspect are worth going to for most people. And you're a straight A student, that's wonderful. That certainly helps your application. And But it's not necessarily indicative of what your LSAT score may be. It might depend on your major or- Yeah, you were saying like that they were, uh, sorry, we had some audio difficulties there. Um, you were saying that the student was like a straight A student and that's good. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll pick up from there. So, Monty's a straight A student, which is wonderful. That may not necessarily, of course, you wanna have a great LSAT score, but the A, the A level may not be indicative of the ultimate LSAT score the student might get. Depends on their major and what potential grade inflation there might be. Having a great LSAT score is always important and it's worth putting in the five to six months it might take to get that kind of score increase. But at a certain point, you might say to yourself, okay, well, I might not get more than a 160 to 165, despite several more months of studying, but a 160, 165 might be good enough, depending on the law school I want to go to, especially considering that you have the A grades. But I'll also touch on this rolling admissions question for a moment. Rolling admissions is discussed a lot. It used to be a big deal back when there were far more law school applicants and law schools than there are now. So considering the recent declines in law school applicants over the past five to 10 years, it doesn't matter as much as it used to. You can take the LSAT in November and still apply perfectly early in the cycle. For this year, even January, that could be early enough in the cycle for most law schools. Most law schools are taking November and January applicants. And so for that reason, applying early matters much less than it used to more and more law schools are waitlisting and deferring students to see who else comes along. So it's much more worthwhile to wait and take it, the LSAT later and get a better score 
than to apply now with a relatively lower score. Yeah, because it, it seems kind of mercenary, but basically the schools aren't really judging you. They are ranked on GPA and LSAT. So while they want you there and they want like good students and so on, they're not taking you in because they like you personally. They're taking you in because of what you can do to help them. And having a high LSAT and a high GPA are what you can do to help them. And so if someone shows up even in like March or something, but they've got like a 175 and a 3.9, I don't think there are many schools that are going to be like, oh, no, no, you're too late. Uh, that That is gold to a lot of schools, and they will still – obviously, it's earlier. It's better other things equal, but the higher stats dwarf that. I definitely agreed on that. And um, there was just one other thing. Uh, on the point of like being a straight-A student throughout college, and I would hate for my LSAT score to not reflect the level of work I am capable of. I just wanted to flag this because there are sometimes some things I hear from students who tend to get stuck at plateaus and who tend not to improve. And this is one of those things. So I, I don't want to be like too mean to the student, but I just want to kind of analyze this language a bit because I think it might be indicative of like an attitude that might uh, thwart eventual LSAT progress. The other phrase, by the way, that I hear a lot is people will say, uh, I understand the LSAT, but I'm not getting better at it. That's that's enough. If, if you find yourself saying either of those two things, um, you should analyze how you approach. But the issue with this one, um, well, actually, there's two issues. One is like a factual thing that I'll just explain about like how people with A grades can have lower LSAT scores than they think that they should have. Uh, you mentioned grade inflation. You mentioned uh, the major. There's also like what school you're at, because in the United States all the schools are sorted by like high school grades and SAT, ACT scores. So if you're at a school that was sorted with like SAT scores of, uh, yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at these, but like say your average on a section is like 520 at that school. And there's some other school that has an average of 630. If, if you take an A student at each school, on average, you would expect the A student at the school with the 630 SAT average to have a better LSAT average than the other A student. Both of them are doing as well compared to the group of people on their campus uh, as uh, like within the campus, but compared to each other, we would expect that the person at the like higher SAT school would also have a higher LSAT score. Uh, so when you're taking the LSAT, you're being exposed to a larger competitor group and a smarter competitor group because all of your competition tends to be A students. Not everyone. There are people who apply into law school that don't have A's, but A's are overrepresented, so it's normal for there to be a chunk of A students who are not, like, natural 170, like, they don't start at 170. That's an excellent point, Graham. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you went there with this and analyzed the reasoning a bit. I think it's a, it's a useful exercise, and it's something that all students should be doing when evaluating reasoning. So the LSAT score, it doesn't necessarily reflect the work you do in an academic setting because they're different skill sets. Studying for things over the course of an entire semester and also having this selection bias of possibly being a big fish in a small pond. Let's say this student is at a, at a relatively easier college. Then they're going to do better if, great, if things are graded on a curve. But then, yes, when you're exposed to people at top colleges and you're all taking the same LSAT and getting measured on that, of course, naturally, those who are more academically gifted across the board might do better on both their GPAs and their LSATs. And their, their GPA will be constant because even if you have a GPA from Harvard or from a community college, they might be weighted the same. But then the LSAT score is where the, the top kids at top colleges can set themselves apart. And that's not to say that someone from a lower ranked school couldn't do well in the LSAT, but their grades at that college would not necessarily be indicative of their ability to do well on the LSAT. The LSAT, in a way, is testing different skills than college work is testing, and it's, it's studying in a different way as well. The nature of the work is different. The style of the work is different. And so they're apples and oranges. That's why you have the phenomenon of splitters and then reverse splitters, people with a high GPA and low LSAT or vice versa. It's a real thing. Lots of people yeah. don't line up on those things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why I say that like the phrase I would hate for my LSAT score to not reflect the level of work I'm capable of. As you say, they're different things, different skill sets. And to me, this is like the equivalent of saying, like, well, I was good at school, I should be good at tennis. Or, you know, like, I've read all the tennis books. 
Um, uh, but like the the actual practice of getting better at tennis is involved in like drilling forehands, backhands, uh, practice of specific things, much like that's what getting better at the LSAT is. And it's not usually based on volume of work. I, I think schools can do people a disservice by you're basically able to, not everything in college, but you're able to grind through a lot of it. And so like sheer hard work um, will can get you good grades in a lot of cases. And that can be misleading depending on what domain you're going into after. You do need the sheer hard work in law school to like more than in undergrad. But what schools are gonna be worrying about if you are applying with like an LSAT score much lower than their median is like um, the bits like precise thinking or other things involved in doing well in law school that aren't just slogging through because it's a different kind of thinking. And so basically you've got to treat the LSAT as its own thing and think like, how am I doing at the skills required for the LSAT and how can I improve on those and just sort of forget about uh, whatever you can do elsewhere. Um, it's good that you had good grades and it's good that like you identify as like, you know, an intelligent person who can do well academically. But you should set that aside when studying for the LSAT because it will only slow you down and give you self-doubt um, because it's not fruitfully focusing on, like, I'm good at grades, why am I not good at this? It's better to think, like, how can I improve at this thing I'm training for now? Excellent. Yeah, I, I agree, Graham. The LSAT is, is a separate beast, and it requires certain things of you that your previous academic work and achievements don't really relate to that much, unfortunately. But it does relate to law school it does relate to passing the bar and so it is useful there's there's a method to the madness but it does require in a way humbling yourself a bit and taking the time and giving the LSAT the respect it deserves to develop and further your understanding of those deep skills now what was it like for you because you made uh like basically the sort of jump they're talking about right like what, what was your total score improvement well I, I started i don't remember the exact it was something like a 152 on my first exam and I ended up with a 175. So that's a, a 23 point increase. It happened slowly over a long period of time. But I think the, the key breakthroughs for me related to understanding the test more from the test maker's perspective. It did require the repeated exposure to the same questions and analyzing them in excruciating detail. So it really took a tremendous amount of time. But it also wasn't just about taking exam after exam over and over and plateauing and expecting different results. I did that at first. And then after a while, I discovered that it wasn't working. And I admitted to myself that although it was in a way easier because it was just doing the same thing, it wasn't what was getting going to get me the results. And so once I switched gears and started focusing more on reviewing and analyzing patterns in my mistakes, that's when things really started to change. And that's not really something that I found myself at least to have done in other domains in the past it's a lot a lot more work we do in academically is content related rather than argument related or structure related and of course writing papers does involve making arguments but ultimately a lot of it's just backed up by lots of detailed evidence and going to the library and getting books and quoting them and paraphrasing them and incorporating the arguments of different authors but it doesn't, at least in my experience, it didn't relate as much to the sort of work the LSAT involves. What do you think? How do you see the connection between academics and the LSAT? Uh, so, I... To be honest, I don't see that much. Mm. <laughs> um, like, it's it felt like very different fields for me. I, I read The Economist uh, in school for fun, and that felt like more of a training than than school did. The exception would be like studying economics, maybe where there's like math felt like actually the same skill as the LSAT because you're like thinking precisely about little variables that you have to move around and manipulate. And beneath like the layer of English words, there's stuff structural stuff happening in logical reason. It feels more like that, and also logic games. So I don't, I didn't personally see much of a relationship. Yeah, same. I mean, I, I majored in political science and most of my classes involved that and other soft humanities where I was able to get you know relatively easy A's and that's part of why I gravitated towards those classes. But yeah, they in a way because they were easier and because they weren't as rigorous and defined and mathematical like logic games are or as the economics would be or math would be, 
Yeah, I, I didn't see much overlap. What they have in common, of course, you know, doing well, of course, requires hard work and putting in the time. But I think that for the LSAT, the nature of the work, the nature of the work is different, and it's in a way more difficult. Yeah. And when you were making your improvement, what was your mindset like? I mean, obviously, I think you mentioned at the start it was frustrating, um, but once you started making progress, or even before you started making progress, like what what were you thinking about day to day when you're working on it? I was thinking that, I mean, first of all, I, I really wanted to dominate this exam. I placed so much importance on it. I really wanted to master it. And so part of it was I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to read everything I could. And of course, a lot of it was from books with fake LSAT questions that were mostly garbage. But I, when, it, when it came down to like, let's say reading this LSAC super prep or looking at the questions themselves, I really wanted to kind of dissect them and take them apart piece by piece. You know, there was the first level where I was building a foundation and just a general familiarity. But after that, it really became much more about cutting it up and analyzing it into its constituent parts to, to understand how it was constructed. And let's say for logical reasoning, what the common methods of reasoning were like. So it, it definitely involves putting in a tremendous amount of time, but it wasn't just reading books and taking exams the the analysis and the review process were really where the gains came from yeah and so say once you're up at like the the high 150s or something in other words like improvement but still nowhere near the goal it sounds like your mindset was not like darn why am i still at 157 but rather it's more just like how do i analyze these questions like how do i dissect it's like that would you say that was your primary focus like the thing in front of you that you were working on rather than like the level yeah I, I would say that the the score you know obviously you can be happy or sad about whatever score you get but it's just it's just a it's just a measure it's just a measure of where you stand at that moment but it's not necessarily where you'll ultimately end up it is possible to improve significantly but there, there's different levels i mean there's the foundational level where you build a basic familiarity then there's learning strategies and techniques and tools but then beyond that there's learning why those tools and strategies work. What is it about them that makes them work? It's kind of like if you're in a math class and you're learning a formula and you apply that formula, you plug in for X, you get your result, that's, that's great. And of course, you know, there are calculators like TI-83, I remember that can do all those sorts of things. But there's always at the, at the beginning of the math ch textbook chapter, there's always like, here's how this formula was developed and why it works. And I remember in school, like I never read that part of the textbook because it wasn't directly relevant. But when it comes to the LSAT, that sort of thinking is actually really important. It's actually really useful. And if you want to take it to the next level, that's when you actually start like analyzing real world logic in the LSAT style, looking at methods of reasoning, looking at flaws, looking at how egregious the gap might be. And then you can go even deeper and start writing your own questions. I learned a lot when I started writing my own LSAT questions. I didn't do this back when I was studying, but I probably should have, it would have been useful. But I think that for any 170 plus scorer or someone aiming there, I think it's a useful exercise. I wrote my own games while I was already tutoring and I learned a lot from that, especially when it came to writing tempting wrong answer choices. And we were discussing earlier what makes, what makes things out of scope. There's like dozens of things that make it out of scope. If you could actually construct different styles of wrong answer choices, that would put you in the mindset of the test, of the test makers. And I assure you that would deepen your understanding. And so there's all the different levels of understanding and proficiency and being able to do something. But if you want to get the top score, it requires going beyond what you've done before. It requires going the extra mile. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, all right, is that, uh, should we end there or do you want to quickly cover this last question? Speaking of... Um or applying reasoning to everyday situations. Yeah, sure. I think, I think we could touch on it quick. All right. All right. So this person goes by the name uh, Excellent Tenant, and he or she writes, I'm wondering if there's a fallacy here. A school district is requiring all substitute teachers to have a four-year university degree and be state certified. They pay them 100 bucks a day or 50 bucks for a half day. These jobs are random. They give no benefits, no guarantees. The teachers have to be available anytime and be prepared for the lesson. They're also offering work separately to those without a university degree 
as assistant teachers and tutors at 15 bucks an hour. Here's their reasoning why they pay less to those with university degrees. It may be that the hours for one of the jobs are so small that a higher rate of pay is necessary to get people to apply. Being a tutor is likely only for an hour or two, so it's not easy to get people to be willing to work for such a short period of time. It's also hard to compare jobs that require you to be present daily and substituting that is optional. What can you make of this? Thoughts, Graham? Uh, well, it sounds like a business question that I'm used to tutoring myself. Uh, or as a tutor myself, I'm used to this sort of thing. That usually it is true that if you are paying someone to do like just like a random hour here and there, you need to have a higher rate for it to make sense than um, than saying like here's a chunk of hours, you get a chunk of money, because there's switching costs and friction and like transport from one place, uh, not being available for work elsewhere. Um, I also note that like the person asking this is making kind of a I don't know if it's a like it's sort of a value theory of pay or a credential theory of pay that you know like we should pay more to university degree but employers don't pay money based on a piece of paper they pay money on the value that someone can bring and so I think the person asking this question isn't really thinking about things from a market perspective which is sort of something that you would see on on the LSAT like you have to be able to think in terms of basic economics of like why people in a market do stuff. And here, I'm sure if the they could pay the GED equivalent people less money, they would be glad to. Um, they But they must be paying them more for a reason. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that this this questioner is is making, a, uh, is implying some sort of value judgment that, that this is fa- a fallacy that the school district should pay those with the university degree more. And that's what I see is kind of being an implicit conclusion in this submitted question. And I agree with you that it is about economics, really, and that the school district is paying people or offering the pay they need to in order to attract a a sufficient supply of quality instructors, whether it be substitute teachers or those as the assistant teachers and tutors. And so maybe they found that they can't get, that, that they're able to get substitute teachers with this relatively lower pay. And they're paying those without the university degrees more money for the a la carte 15 bucks an hour. And that's what works out for them. So I would say if you don't like the pay, don't take the job. If you do like the pay, do take the job and the market will adjust accordingly. But you have to consider things from the employer's perspective and from the perspective of all the job applicants out there, not necessarily our value judgment on the value of a four-year degree. And in terms of the question about out of scope from like earlier in the podcast and things like that can be relevant even if they don't seem so, I think there's a relevant factor here that isn't mentioned, but that if you were thinking like, you know, what strengthens this or explains the paradox or strengthens their reasoning or whatever, um, one benefit of a substitute teacher, like often people do substitute teaching, at least uh, my mom was a teacher and at least in her system, you would often do substitute teaching as a way to sort of start to break into the real system, like make connections and it's, you're looking for a full-time job. And so you might do it not for the money, but because you want to work and eventually get people to notice you in the system. And so in jobs like that, that are done for reasons, there's a reason other than money for doing them, pay is often lower. That's an excellent point, Graham. Exactly. Kind of like doing a low paid or no pay internship because you're in the hopes that you'll climb the ladder and get get the full-time offer. And it's that's a reasonable thing to do. So I think there's a lot of underlying principles here that could come into play is there the principle yeah. of the four-year degree being worthwhile and should be you should get a bonus just for having one versus the principle that you should be willing to work for less because we might make you an offer later yeah and i just want to highlight like, very quickly um i think sometimes students are like afraid to use this kind of knowledge when they're doing the LSAT. like i didn't i actually didn't read this question in advance of the podcast just while talking about it my brain like suddenly popped in with that idea about how my mom had done work and I'm like, oh, well that seems like a relevant factor. Um, because often your brain will suggest relevant stuff from experience that isn't like, it doesn't, it's not something that has to be true or it's not going to be the answer, but sometimes it is. And if you just sort of listen to it and then can connect it to an answer, it can often lead to stuff and that you have to be open to ideas that seem out of left field. Um, but that actually are relevant to the situation. Excellent, yeah. So if we think of this as resolve the paradox, 
we're considering factors that were not directly stated in the stimulus. One of them could be substitute teachers are often willing to work for lower pay in the hopes they will be offered a full-time position. Or a general underlying principle for this argument could be that those with four-year degrees should be compensated for their investment in, in attaining that degree. That's obviously external to market forces of supply and demand, though. Yeah. Excellent point, yeah. All right. So what do you say well, we leave off here for today? Yeah, I think that's good. Should we uh, leave a way for listeners to send us questions if they're interested? Uh, do we have a way to do that? I don't think we have one at the moment, but uh, listeners <laughs> listeners can e- email each of us individually for now and reach out to either one or both of us. What's the best way to reach, to reach you, yeah. Graham? Uh, you can send an email to support at lsathacks.com or go to my site on the about page. There's a contact form and you can submit one there. Great. And uh, listeners can also, what listeners can reach out to me at lsatunplugged at gmail.com or also find out how to reach me on my website, lsatblog, which is lsatblog.blogspot.com. Yeah. All right. My website is lsathacks.com. Uh, all right. Sounds good. All right. Well, Talk to you Thanks, next time. Yeah, talk to you next time, Graham. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care.